Welcome to the Seriously Funny Music Podcast, the show where we talk about funny music and explore why it can often go underappreciated. In each episode, we'll focus on one artist and one academic concept to illustrate this point. This episode is about the band They Might Be Giants and novelty music. They Might Be Giants are a Brooklyn-based alternative rock band that have been active since the early 1980s. They are known for their lyrical wit and imaginative song topics, singing about things like the chemical composition of the Earth's sun, the surrealist Belgian painter James Enzor, and historical events like the 1844 presidential election. Their music is sometimes funny, often experimental, and always unique. They have released 23 studio albums so far over the course of a 40-year-long career. Let's jump in with the definition of novelty music. John McInnes in the Grove Dictionary of American Music defines novelty songs as a comic popular song usually employing parody or a distinctive gimmick for humorous effect. The appearance of the word gimmick may point to a negative connotation here. This would imply that these songs are not actually good, but can only appeal through some other novel method. Other definitions note that novelty songs are generally lighthearted and intended to amuse. It is also typical that they are written in response to specific events, trends, or other popular phenomena. They're sometimes parodies as well, but don't have to be. More often than not, they feature a simple musical construction as to not detract from the humor of the lyrics. Some examples of novelty songs are The Monster Mash, Surfin' Bird, and My Ding-a-Ling. The low aesthetic valuation of the novelty song is often tied to its ephemerality and reliance on lowbrow humor. It's also important to reiterate that these songs may be parodies, but don't have to be. Yet, many internet lists of best novelty songs do seem to feature more than a few Weird Al Yankovic songs. Novelty's association with parody could lead listeners to an automatically negative aesthetic evaluation, and vice versa, a topic that is discussed in depth in the Weird Al episode. Perhaps this is all a fair definition for novelty songs, but the problem actually lies with how and to whom the term is applied. Do They Might Be Giants make novelty music? Depends who you ask. Minimum wage! Before registering my own opinion, I'd like to share a few of my favorite They Might Be Giants album reviews. A 1990 Rolling Stone piece on the band's now seminal album Flood uses words like zany, smirking, sophomoric, and novelty, and rates it 2 out of 5 stars, ending with the following quotation. Too glib for their own good, too absorbed in their own facileness to bother with anything other than campy emotions. They Might Be Giants might just try being a little more genuine. A review from The Guardian of the band's 2004 album The Spine reads, This latest outing bristles with all the typical John Linnell, John Flansburg trademarks. The excruciating wordplay, the neurotic hopping between musical styles, the reduction of various genres of classic pop to a smug mock infantilism. Run away while there's still time. And finally, from 90s author and tastemaker Elizabeth Wurzel for New York Magazine, Flood is awash in quick, quirky songs, some more cute than others, but none seem actually to be about much of anything. The one exception is Your Racist Friend, which addresses a complicated topic. People who say that some of their best friends are black and then make off-the-cuff racial slurs in a catchy, palatable song that might actually get people to think. This is where the party ends. I 
Now, there's a lot to unpack in these reviews. First of all, there's the accusation that the band isn't genuine. To me, this reads as a relative to the authenticity argument, which favors artists who are easily perceived as being real, whether this is an actual quality or not. Furthermore, words like zany, quirky, and campy all seem to indicate that the reviewers have a preference for something more austere or sincere, or, well, sad. Wurzel goes as far as to explicitly indicate her preference for songs that are introspective and offer emotional depth, and she implies that They Might Be Giants are either unable or unwilling to create these. In other words, art is supposed to be about something. She does gravitate towards the one song on Flood that addresses a serious ethical issue and might make you think. While the song Your Racist Friend does have a worthy moral anti-racist message, that alone does not make it a good song. Those reviews, and many more, point to the strange topics of their lyrics, benignly implying that there is a set of correct or appropriate topics for songs, and anything outside of that is somewhat of a novelty. Another major source of criticism of the Giants' artistry is their stylistic inconsistency, referred to as neurotic genre-hopping by Adam Sweeting of The Guardian. The Johns are notable for their eclectic sound. Even within individual albums, the songs fluctuate wildly in style from new wave, like Twisting, to country western, like Lucky Ball and Chain, to an accordion march, like Particle Man. Universe man, universe man, size of the entire universe man, usually kind to smaller man. Universe man, he's got a watch with a minute hand, millennium hand, energy on hand, and when they beat, it's a happy land. Powerful man, universe This is a source of much humor and enjoyment within their catalog. Fans of the band expect and appreciate this trademark stylistic diversity, but critics often do not. The tendency to endorse more uniformly consistent artists reinforces an idea that the best bands have worked hard to hone their art into a narrowly defined and easily recognizable sound, and those artists who have not done so are unable to for lack of skill or artistic vision. Ironically, though, there's been equally as much disdain for so-called concept albums that are too rigidly cohesive. I will note that, in recent years, the general trend away from album-oriented rock and towards singles may be an indication that there is less of a desire for interrelatedness and stylistic consistency across an artist's work. This could, in part, explain why some criticism of Flood and other early Giants albums have not aged well. In a 2001 CNN interview, John Flansburg addressed some of the criticism of his group, saying, We do some very lighthearted songs. We do some very complicated songs. And that, in and of itself, is an unacceptable stance. Tastemakers believe you have to be a party band or you have to be a really heavy band, but you can't be both. John demonstrates an understanding that a lot of music criticism is not about assessing subjective artistic value, but more simply, categorization identifying what an artist is all about. And often, rather than deal with a difficult-to-place artist, one can simply disregard them. Similarly, much comedic art, like satire, is easier to dismiss than risk missing the point and looking foolish. The polysemy of meaning present in works of humor can be an ethically ambiguous area that some people are apt to avoid entirely. Listen to the episode on Childish Gambino and Ethical Aestheticism for more on that topic. The next point I want to address is the categorical confusion between novelty and humor in music. They Might Be Giants have often defended themselves against accusations of writing trivial music because of their tendency to utilize humor. In this interview with John Linnell, he speaks to how he feels about their songs making people laugh, saying, To us, our songs are very meaningful and interesting, and the whole point is that they're saying something. 
but they have this structure of some joke, maybe. Part of the effect is that it lightens the song up so it's not pretentious. If you think of what you're doing as tremendously important, you can really drive people away. Humor can be used as an effective technique to mask or make more palatable a heavy topic, or just to diffuse some of the pomposity of being a songwriter. I'm reminded of this quote from the song Listen to Your Heart by Cheekface. Just because it's funny doesn't make it a joke. Now stop meditating and take me to go bold. Use it till it's gone. Keep on keeping on. Horse up to the cart. Listen to your heart. Cheekface are no doubt disciples of the Johns and have even covered their classic song Anna Ng. Certainly, they seem to have gone through some of the same trials of being criticized for not taking music seriously enough. Ben Folds is another example of a brilliant songwriter who excels at infusing his work with humor, but it has not always been without consequence. In the following quotation from a podcast interview, he discusses how there is often a confusing confluence between funny and novelty, stating, For most people, for music, there has been very light to nil sense of humor. They don't know how to see sense of humor in a song. They haven't been trained to see a sense of humor. There's no way that you're going to get them to stand and take that judgment out of the way. They think it's a novelty song. Just find a place where no one knows of your redneck past. Yeah, you can easily dispose of your redneck past. By identifying music that is funny as being a novelty, one is also affirming that unfunny music is the correct and normal mode of expression. People who would do this are also reinforcing their own supposedly superior taste by properly distancing themselves from art that may be too comedic. Although, to an extent, certain types of pretentious attitudes seem to have abated. In the last few decades, there have been sociological studies examining the fact that, culturally, we've moved towards a taste of omnivorousness rather than one of exclusivity. In other words, it's now normal for music fans to listen to and appreciate a wide variety of artists and genres. However, other studies have demonstrated that taste in comedy has largely resisted this move, and those with high cultural capital still reject lowbrow comedy, like that found in many so-called novelty songs. Brian Doherty, former They Might Be Giants drummer, has told an interesting anecdote about the Johns that I think speaks to their self-awareness and determination to be taken seriously as artists. In 1994, the band found out that Weird Al wanted to visit them backstage at one of their shows. The Johns insisted that no one in the band or crew allow any photographs to be taken with him. Despite any affection they might have had for Al, the Giants were already so concerned with accusations of their music being labeled parody or novelty that the last thing they needed was to be seen associating with the parody master himself. Yankovic, of course, had no reason to avoid being seen with them or any band since he lacks any traditional authenticity to be sullied by such an encounter. Anyway, Weird Al was obviously a fan of theirs, releasing a They Might Be Giants style parody called Everything You Know Is Wrong on his 1996 album, Bad Hair Day. Related to their desire to be taken seriously, for many years the Giants weathered accusations of sounding like children's music. 
partially because of their unconventional song topics and instrumentation, as well as the fact that several of their songs did appear on the show Tiny Toons in the early 90s. Being labeled a kiddie band certainly would do them no favors by way of artistic credibility. Eventually, we do see They Might Be Giants release several albums of actual children's songs, but not until they've established their credibility for many years. Their first kids' album, No, came out in 2002, 20 years after the band formed. We've already discussed how They Might Be Giants juxtapose musical genres to generate humor, but they also utilize a variety of techniques within their lyrics. One of the band's most popular and successful songs is Birdhouse in Your Soul. The lyrics of this song are somewhat nonsensical and stream-of-consciousness in nature, narrated by a nightlight referring to Jason and the Argonauts and name-checking the Longines Symphonet, among many other things. I'd be fired if that were my job After killing Jason often countless screaming Argonauts The bird of friendliness Like guardian angels It's always near New canary in the alley by the light switch Who watches over you Make a little birdhouse in your soul Not to put too fine a bond on it Say I'm the only bee in your bonnet Make a There's an excellent quote from Elizabeth Sandifer and Alexander Reed, the authors of the 33 and a third book on Flood, that I think works well to help explain the artistry in this song, but also behind much of the band's work. They wrote, Birdhouse in your soul and its littermates reject the fundamental expectation that a song is about a particular topic, and that its identity comes from that topic. This is a rule of pop. More insidiously, if you replace song with person, then this expectation translates to an unwritten rule of social identity, or as it's commonly called, being cool. Birdhouse, while not explicitly a parody of one particular song or artist, could be seen as a goof on the supposed sanctity of serious, cool popular music and its fans. It rejects the social order and is proud to be an outcast. The song also musically references Love and Spoonful's Summer in the City and the infamous James Bond chromatic guitar progression, these interpolations could be read as parodic. Elsewhere in this series, we've discussed that humor is polysemous, but is polysemy humorous? It certainly can be, and their everything but the kitchen sink approach in this song seems to lend itself to a humorous interpretation. What do you think, what do you make out of that recording? I don't know, Gloria, I just don't... Some kind of singing. They sound like all kinds of people, right? Yeah. And then it says another child is born in India every time you call this number, right? Yeah, right. Does that make any sense to you? No, it doesn't make no sense to me. The final area I want to delve into is the problem with ephemerality in art. Most definitions of novelty songs make explicit mention of the fact that they are culturally specific and therefore have a short shelf life. My question is, if a work of art is defined by its specific relevance to current events, does that make it a less good aesthetic object? Asked another way, should art be universal and timeless, if such a thing is even possible? Art and literature critic Clive Bell wrote that it is the mark of great art that its appeal is universal and eternal. But I would argue that for something to be truly universal, it needs to be so accessible and nonspecific. Artists cannot expect a high level of cultural competence from their audience. If this is true, then the works with the most potential to be universal are also going to be somewhat bland. Less universal art, such as comedy often, by its nature being timely and culturally specific, has greater potential to go deep into a subject. Ironically, in a discussion on this topic in the New York Times, Adam Kirsch writes that the local is the royal road to the universal. On the other hand, Russian philosopher and literary critic Mikhail Bakhtin wrote that laughter is not a universal philosophical form. 
It can refer only to individual and individually typical phenomena of social life. That which is important and essential cannot be comical. The essential truth about the world and about man cannot be told in the language of laughter. I don't propose to resolve the debates on this topic, but I think there is a tendency to prize the more timeless and universal, since it is safer and more historically accepted to do so, whether they are actually better or not. Since comedic art is often associated with timeliness and the individual, it tends to be seen as less acceptable and less aesthetic. Funny music being too closely and often mistakenly associated with the novelty song comes along for the ride. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached, head is mad at black, got the bushes black to match, riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your Porsche, I've been in a valley, you ain't been up off that porch now, can't nobody tell me nothing. I believe there's a compelling case study in the They Might Be Giants song, Dr. Worm. It was released in 1998 on the album Severe Tire Damage and tells the story of an actual worm who plays the drums but isn't a doctor. It features a fantastic melody, polished arrangement, and incredibly catchy songwriting. There is also a well-executed modulation in the bridge that segues back into the original key while reintroducing the final chorus. In fact, the impressive nature of the production and the songwriting does work to juxtapose the perceived silliness of the lyrics, thereby heightening the comedic effect. I say the word silliness, but I don't want to give the impression that this in any way is a negative asset. The lyrics are humorous, but tell a clear and vivid story. By all accounts, this is a great pop song. It certainly could be accused of being a novelty song based on its topic and humorous nature, but it doesn't have any specifically ephemeral references in it. It is also not a simple musical construction as novelty songs typically are. And finally, the note that novelty songs are intended to amuse is such a bizarre, unspecific accusation. Yes, this song is amusing, but what music or other artwork is not meant on some level as entertainment? Even the cultural philosopher Theodore Adorno, who wrote extensively on his distaste for popular music, wrote in the essay Aesthetic Theory, If the last trace of enjoyment were expunged from art, we would face the embarrassing question of what works of art are for. Dr. Worm, I'm interested in things. I'm not a real doctor, but I am a real worm. I am an I certainly don't believe that They Might Be Giants are a novelty band. One of the most compelling arguments for this is their longevity. The fact that the band has managed to sustain itself for so many years and albums shows that their early work was not just a gimmick as some critics proposed. 40 years, 23 studio albums, countless dial-a-songs dialed, They Might Be Giants have sustained their career far beyond the normal shelf life of a rock band, let alone a novelty act. This is all in spite of, or because of, their good-humored nature, clever songwriting, and willingness to take risks. There's also the impressive technical quality of their music and lyrics. This is obviously harder to make a case for objectively, but their many fans, including countless songwriters and other artists, make a compelling argument for this. Negative reviews calling them quirky, cute, or novelty don't seem to upset them. At least not anymore. It certainly has not stopped them from continuing to make wildly original music, ignoring trends and looking forward, all while drawing on the rich musical history of the past. At the end of the tour, 
The Seriously Funny Music Podcast was written and produced by Scott Greenberg and is an adaptation of his master's thesis, The Apparent Bias Against Comedic Popular Music. Follow Scott on all social media and streaming platforms at Scott Making Sense. That's sense like money. 